Section 31 of Essays and Dialogues. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays and Dialogues by Giacomo Leopardi. Translated by Charles Edwardus. Section 31 dialogue between plotinus and porphyrius one day when i porphyrius was meditating about taking my own life plotinus guessed my intention he interrupted me and said that such a design could not proceed from a healthy mind but was due to some melancholy indisposition and that i must have change of air excerpt life of plotinus by porphyrius the same incident is recounted in the life of Plotinus by Eunapius, who adds that Plotinus recorded in a book the conversation he then held with Porphyrius on the subject. Plotinus, you know, Porphyrius, how sincerely I am your friend. You will not wonder, therefore, that I am unquiet about you. For some time I have noticed how sad and thoughtful you are your expression of countenance is unusual and you have let fall certain words which make me anxious in short i fear that you contemplate some evil design porphyrius how what do you mean plotinus i think you intend to do yourself some injury it were a bad omen to give the deed its name listen to me dear porphyrius and do not conceal the truth do not wrong the friendship that has so long existed between us. I know my words will cause you displeasure, and I can easily understand that you would rather have kept your design hid. But I could not be silent in such a matter, and you ought not to refuse to confide in one who loves you as much as himself. Let us then talk calmly, weighing our words. Open your heart to me, tell me your troubles and let me be auditor of your lamentations i have deserved your confidence i promise on my part not to oppose the carrying out of your resolution if we agree that it is useful and reasonable porphyrius i have never denied a request of yours dear plotinus i will therefore confess to you what i would rather have kept to myself nothing in the world would induce me to tell it to any one else you are right in your interpretation of my thoughts if you wish to discuss the subject i will not refuse in spite of my dislike to do so for on such occasions the mind prefers to encompass itself with a lofty silence and to meditate in solitude giving itself up for the time to a state of complete self-absorption nevertheless i am willing to do as you please in the first place i may say that my design is not the consequence of any special misfortune it is simply the result of an utter weariness of life and a continuous ennui which has long possessed me like a pain to this may be added a feeling of the vanity and nothingness of all things which pervades me in body and soul do not say that this disposition of mind is unreasonable though i will allow that it may in part proceed from physical causes it is in itself perfectly reasonable 
and therein differs from all our other dispositions. For everything that makes us attach some value to life and human things proves on analysis to be contrary to reason and to proceed from some illusion or falsity. Nothing is more rational than ennui. Pleasures are all unreal. Pain itself, at least mental pain, is equally false, because on examination it is seen to have scarcely any foundation or none at all. The same may be said of fear and hope. Ennui alone, which is born from the vanity of things, is genuine and never deceives. If then all else be vain, the reality of life is summed up in ennui. Plotinus, it may be so. I will not contradict you as to that, but we must now consider the nature of your project. You know Plato refused to allow that man is at liberty to escape, like a fugitive slave, from the captivity in which he is placed by the will of the gods, in depriving himself of life. Porphyrius, I beg you, dear Plotinus, to leave Plato alone now with his doctrines and dreams. It is one thing to praise, explain, and champion certain theories in the schools and in books, but quite another to practically exemplify them. School teaching and books constrain us to admire Plato and conform to him, because such is the custom in the present day. But in real life, far from being admired, he is even detested. It is true that Plato is said to have spread abroad by his writings the notion of a future life, thus leaving men in doubt as to their fate after death, and serving a good purpose in deterring men from evil in this life, through fear of punishment in the next. If I imagine Plato to have been the inventor of these ideas and beliefs, I would speak thus to him. Quote, you observe, O Plato, how inimical to our race the power which governs the world has always been, whether known as nature, destiny, or fate. Many reasons contradict the supposition that man has that high rank in the order of creation which we are pleased to imagine. But by no reason can he be deprived of the characteristic attributed to him by Homer, that of suffering. Nature, however, has given us a remedy for all evils. It is death, little feared by those who are not fully intelligent and by all others desired. But you have deprived us of this dearest consolation of our life, full of suffering that it is. The doubts raised by you have torn this comfort from our minds and made the thought of death the bitterest of all thoughts. Thanks to you, unhappy mortals now fear the storm less than the port, driven from their one place of repose and robbed of the only remedy they can look for. They resign themselves to the sufferings and troubles of life. Thus you have been more cruel towards us than destiny, nature, or fate. And since this doubt, once conceived, can never be got rid of, to you it is due that your fellow men regard death as something more terrible than life. You are to blame that rest and peace are forever banished from the last moments of man, whereas all other animals die in perfect fearlessness. This one thing, O Plato, was wanting to complete the sum of human misery. True, your intention was good but it has failed in its purpose. Violence and injustice are not arrested, 
for evildoers only realize the terrors of death in their last moments when quite powerless to do more harm your doubts trouble only the good who are more disposed to benefit than injure their fellow-men and the weak and the timid who are neither inclined by nature nor disposition to oppress any one bold and strong men who have scarcely any power of imagination and those who require some other restraint than mere law regard these fears as chimerical and are undeterred from evil doing we see daily instances of this and the experience of all the centuries from your time down to the present confirms it good laws still more good education and mental and social culture these are the things that preserve justice and mildness amongst men civilization and the use of reflection and reason make men almost always hate to war with each other and shed one another's blood and render them disinclined to quarrel and endanger their lives by lawlessness but such good results are never due to threatening fancies and bitter expectation of terrible chastisement these like the multitude and cruelty of the punishments used in certain states only serve to increase the baseness and ferocity of men and are therefore opposed to the well-being of human society perhaps however you will reply that you have promised a reward in the future for the good what then is this reward a state of life which seems full of ennui even less tolerable than our present existence the bitterness of your punishments is unmistakable but the sweetness of your rewards is hidden in secret incomprehensible to our minds how then can order and virtue be said to be encouraged by your doctrine i will venture to say that if but few men have been deterred from evil by the fear of your terrible tartarus no good man has been led to perform a single praiseworthy action by desire of your elysium such a paradise does not attract us in the least but apart from the fact that your heaven is scarcely an inviting place who among the best of us can hope to merit it what man can satisfy your inexorable judges minos Iacus, and rhadamanthus who will not overlook one single fault however trivial besides who can say that he has reached your standard of purity in short we cannot look for happiness in the world to come and however clear a man's conscience may be or however upright his life in his last hour he will dread the future with its terrible incertitude it is due to your teaching that fear is a much stronger influence than hope and may be said to dominate mankind this then is the result of your doctrines man whose life on earth is wretched in the extreme anticipates death not as an end to all his miseries but as the beginning of a condition more wretched still thus you surpass in cruelty not only nature and destiny but the most merciless tyrant and bloodthirsty executioner the world has ever known but what cruelty can exceed that of your law forbidding man to put an end to his sufferings and troubles by voluntarily depriving himself of life thereby triumphing over the horrors of death other animals do not desire to put an end to their life 
because their unhappiness is less than ours nor would they even have sufficient courage to face a voluntary death but if they did wish to die what should deter them from fulfilling their desire they are affected by no prohibition nor fear of the future here again you make us inferior to brute beasts the liberty they possess they do not use the liberty granted also to us by nature so miserly in her gifts you take away thus the only creatures capable of desiring death have the right to die refuse them nature destiny and fortune overwhelm us with cruel blows that cause us to suffer fearfully you add to our sufferings by tying our arms and enchaining our feet so that we can neither defend ourselves nor escape from our persecutors truly when i think over the great wretchedness of humanity it seems to me that your doctrines above all things of plato are guilty of it and that men may well complain of you more than of nature for the latter in decreeing for us an existence full of unhappiness has left us the means of escaping from it when we please indeed unhappiness cannot be called extreme when we have in our hands the power to shorten it at will besides the mere thought of being able to quit life at pleasure and withdraw from the miseries of the world is so great an alleviation of our lot that in itself it suffices to render existence supportable consequently there can be no doubt that our chief unhappiness proceeds from the fear that in abbreviating our life we might be plunged into a state of greater misery than the present and not only will our misery be greater in the future but it will be so full of the refinement of cruelty that a comparison of these inexperienced tortures with the known sufferings of this life reduces the latter almost to insignificance you have easily o plato raised this question of immortality but the human species will become extinct before it is settled your genius is the most fatal thing that has ever afflicted humanity and nothing can ever exist more disastrous in its effects Unquote. that is what i would say to plato had he invented the doctrine we are discussing but i am well aware he did not originate it however enough has been said let us drop the subject if you please plotinus porphyrius you know how i revere plato yet in talking to you on such an occasion as this i will give you my own opinion and will disregard his authority the few words of his that i spoke were rather as an introduction than anything else returning to my first argument i affirmed that not only plato and every other philosopher but nature herself teaches us that it is improper to take away our own life i will not say much on this point because if you reflect a little i am sure you will agree with me that suicide is unnatural it is indeed an action the most contrary possible to nature the whole order of things would be subverted if the beings of the world destroyed themselves and it is repugnant and absurd to suppose that life is given only to be taken away by its possessor 
and that being should exist only to become non-existent. The law of self-preservation is the strictest law of nature. Its maintenance is enjoined in every possible way on man and all creatures of the universe. And, apart from anything else, do we not instinctively fear, hate, and shun death, even in spite of ourselves? Therefore, since suicide is so utterly contrary to our nature, I cannot think that it is permissible. Porphyrius, I have already meditated on the subject from all points of view, for the mind could not design such a step without due consideration. It seems to me that all your reasoning is answerable with just as much counter-reasoning, but I will be brief. You doubt whether it be permissible to die without necessity. I ask you if it be permissible to be unhappy. Nature, you say, forbids suicide. It is a strange thing that since she is either unable or unwilling to make me happy, or free me from unhappiness, she should have the power to force me to live. If nature has given us a love of life and a hatred of death, she has also given us a love of happiness and a hatred of suffering. And the latter instincts are much more powerful than the former, because happiness is the supreme aim of all our actions and sentiments of love or hatred. For to what end do we shun death or desire life, save to promote our well-being, and for fear of the contrary? How, then, can it be unnatural to escape from suffering in the only way open to man, that is, by dying? since in life it can never be avoided? How, too, can it be true that nature forbids me to devote myself to death, which is undoubtedly a good thing, and to reject life, which is undoubtedly an evil and injurious thing, since it is a source of nothing but suffering to me? Plotinus, these things do not persuade me that suicide is not unnatural. Have we not a strong instinctive horror of death? Besides, we never see brute beasts, which invariably follow the instincts of their nature, when not contrarily trained by man, either commit suicide or regard death as anything but a condition to be struggled against, even in their moments of greatest suffering. In short, all men who commit this desperate act will be found to have lived out of conformity to nature. They, on the contrary, who live naturally, would without exception reject suicide, even if the thought proposed itself to them. Porphyrius, well, if you like, I will admit that the action is contrary to nature. But what has that to do with it, if we ourselves do not conform to nature? That is, are no longer savages? Compare ourselves, for instance, with the inhabitants of India or Ethiopia, who are said to have retained their primitive manners and wild habits. You would scarcely think that these people were even of the same species as ourselves. This transformation of life and change of manners and customs by civilization has been accompanied, in my opinion, by an immeasurable increase of suffering. Savages never wish to commit suicide, nor does their imagination ever induce them to regard death as a desirable thing. 
whereas we who are civilized wish for it and sometimes voluntarily seek it now if man be permitted to live unnaturally and be consequently unhappy why may he not also die unnaturally for death is indeed the only way by which he can deliver himself from the unhappiness that results from civilization or why not return to our primitive condition and state of nature ah we should find it almost impossible as far as mere external circumstances are concerned and in the more important matters of the mind quite impossible what is less natural than medicine by this i mean surgery and the use of drugs they are both ordinarily used expressly to combat nature and are quite unknown to brute beasts and savages yet since the diseases they remedy are unnatural and only occur in civilized countries where people have fallen from their natural condition these arts being also unnatural are highly esteemed and even indispensable similarly suicide which is a radical cure for the disease of despair one of the outcomes of civilization must not be blamed because it is unnatural for unnatural evils require unnatural remedies it would indeed be hard and unjust that reason which increases our misery by forcing us to go contrary to nature should in this matter join hands with nature and take from us our only remaining hope and refuge and the only resource consistent with itself and should force us to continue in our wretchedness the truth is this plotinus our primitive nature has departed from us forever habit and reason have given us a new nature in place of the old one to which we shall never return formerly it was unnatural for men to commit suicide or desire death in the present day both are natural they conform to our new nature which however like the old one still impels us to seek our happiness and since death is our greatest good is it remarkable that men should voluntarily seek it for our reason tells us that death is not an evil but as the remedy for all evils it is the most desirable of things now tell me are all other actions of civilized men regulated by the standard of their primitive nature if so give me a single instance no it is our present and not our primitive nature that interprets our actions in other words it is our reason why then should suicide alone be judged unreasonably and from the aspect of our primitive nature why should this latter which has no influence over our life control our death why should not the same reason govern our death which rules our life it is a fact whether due to reason or our unhappiness that in many people especially those who are unfortunate and afflicted the primitive hatred of death is extinguished and even changed into desire and love as i have said such love though incompatible with our early nature is a reality in the present day we are also necessarily unhappy because we live unnaturally it were therefore manifestly unreasonable to assert 
that the prohibition which forbade suicide in the primitive state should now hold good this seems to me sufficient justification of the deed it remains to be proved whether or not it be useful plotinus never mind that side of the question my dear porphyrius because if the deed be permissible i have no doubt of its extreme utility but i will never admit that a forbidden and improper action can be useful the matter really resolves itself into this which is the better to suffer or not to suffer it is certain that most men would prefer suffering mixed with enjoyment to a state devoid of both suffering and enjoyment so ardently do we desire and thirst after joy but this is beside the question because enjoyment and pleasure properly speaking are as impossible as suffering is inevitable i mean a suffering as continuous as our never-satisfied desire for pleasure and happiness and quite apart from the peculiar and accidental sufferings which must infallibly be experienced by even the happiest of men in truth were we certain that in continuing to live we should continue thus to suffer we should have sufficient reason to prefer death to life because existence does not contain a single genuine pleasure to compensate for such suffering even if that were possible porphyrius it seems to me that ennui alone and the fact that we cannot hope for an improved existence are sufficiently cogent reasons to induce a desire for death even though our condition be one of prosperity and it is often a matter of surprise to me that we have no record of princes having committed suicide through ennui and weariness of their grandeur like other men in lower stations of life we read how hegesius the cyreniac used to reason so eloquently about the miseries of life that his auditors straightway went and committed suicide for which reason he was called the quote, death persuader unquote, and was at length forbidden by ptolemy to hold further discourse on the subject certain princes it is true have been suicides among others mithridates cleopatra and otho but these all put an end to themselves to escape some peculiar evils or from dread of an increase of misfortune princes are i imagine more liable than other men to feel a hatred of their condition and to think favorably of suicide for have they not reached the summit of what is called human happiness they have nothing to hope for because they have everything that forms a part of the so-called good things of this life they cannot anticipate greater pleasure tomorrow than they have enjoyed today. thus they are more unfortunately situated than all less exalted people for the present is always sad and unsatisfactory the future alone is a source of pleasure but be that as it may we see then that there is nothing to prevent men voluntarily quitting life and preferring death save the fear of another world 
all other reasons are palpably ill-founded they are due to a wrong estimate in comparing the advantages and evils of existence and whoever at any time feels a strong attachment to life or lives in a state of contentment does so under a mistake either of judgment will or even fact plotinus that is true dear porphyrius but nevertheless let me advise nay implore you to listen to the counsels of nature rather than reason follow the instincts of that primitive nature mother of us all who though she has manifested no affection for us in creating us for unhappiness is a less bitter and cruel foe than our own reason with its boundless curiosity speculation chattering dreams ideas and miserable learning besides nature has sought to diminish our unhappiness by concealing or disguising it from us as much as possible and although we are greatly changed and the power of nature within us is much lessened we are not so altered but that much of our former manhood remains and our primitive nature is not quite stifled within us in spite of all our folly it will never be otherwise so too the mistaken view of life that you mention although i admit that it is in reality palpably erroneous will continue to prevail it is held not only by idiots and the half-witted but by clever wise and learned men and always will be unless the nature that made us and not man nor his reason herself puts an end to it and i assure you that neither disgust of life nor despair nor the sense of the nullity of things the vanity of all anxiety and the insignificance of man nor hatred of the world and oneself are of long duration although such dispositions of mind are perfectly reasonable and the contrary unreasonable for our physical condition changes momentarily in more or less degree and often without any especial cause life endears itself to us again and new hopes give brightness to human things which once more seem worthy of some attention not indeed from our understanding but from what may be termed the higher senses of the intellect this is why each of us though perfectly aware of the truth continues to live in spite of reason and conforms to the behavior of others for our life is controlled by these senses not by the understanding whether suicide be reasonable or our compromise with life unreasonable the former is certainly a horrible and inhuman action it were better to follow nature and remain man than act like a monster in following reason besides ought we not to give some thought to the friends relatives acquaintance and people with whom we have been accustomed to live and from whom we should thus separate for ever and if the thought of such separation be nothing to us ought we not to consider their feelings they lose one whom they loved and respected and the atrocity of his death enhances their grief 
I know that the wise man is not easily moved, nor yields to pity and lamentation to a disquieting extent. He does not abase himself to the ground, shed tears immoderately, nor do other similar things unworthy of one who clearly understands the condition of humanity. But such fortitude of soul should be reserved for grievous circumstances that arise from nature, or are unavoidable. It is an abuse of fortitude to deprive ourselves forever of the society and conversation of those who are dear to us. He is a barbarian and not a wise man who takes no account of the grief experienced by his friends, relations, and acquaintances. He who scarcely troubles himself about the grief his death would cause to his friends and family is selfish. He cares little for others and all for himself. And truly the suicide thinks only of himself. He desires naught but his personal welfare and throws away all thought of the rest of the world. In short, suicide is an action of the most unqualified and sordid egotism and is certainly the least attractive form of self-love that exists in the world. Finally, my dear Porphyrius, the troubles and evils of life, although many and inevitable, when, as in your case, unaccompanied by grievous calamity or bodily infirmity, are after all easy to be borne, especially by a wise and strong man like yourself. And indeed, life itself is of so little importance that man ought not to trouble himself much either to retain or abandon it and without thinking greatly about it we ought to give the former instinct precedence over the latter if a friend begged you to do this why should you not gratify him now i earnestly entreat you dear porphyrius by the memory of our long friendship put away this idea do not grieve your friends who love you with such warm affection and your plotinus who has no dearer nor better friend in the world help us to bear the burden of life instead of leaving us without a thought let us live dear porphyrius and console each other let us not refuse our share of the sufferings of humanity apportioned to us by destiny let us cling to each other with mutual encouragement and hand in hand strengthen one another better to bear the troubles of life our time after all will be short and when death comes we will not complain in the last hour our friends and companions will comfort us and we shall be gladdened by the thought that after death we shall still live in their memory and be loved by them footnote one plotinus was born in 204 a.d he began teaching philosophy in rome and was highly esteemed at court unapius says of him quote, the heavenly elevation of his mind and his perplexed style made him very tiresome and unpleasant End quote. He was ascetic in his habits, disparaged patriotism, depreciated material things, purposely forgot his birthday, and acted altogether rather as a spectator 
of other men's lives than as a living man himself footnote two porphyrius was born in two thirty three a d he was a pupil of plotinus and like him established a school of philosophy at rome from study of the writings of plotinus he fell into a state of disgust with life and retiring from rome lived alone in a solitary and wild part of sicily here he determined to put an end to his life by starvation he was found by plotinus who had followed him from rome in a state of extreme weakness and was by his wise counsels dissuaded from completing his intention end of section thirty one